welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Voting for Revolution, Lenin in the Ballot Box. All of our music tonight is from Ornette Coleman. Coleman was an American jazz saxophonist, violinist, trumpeter, and composer who, in the 1960s, was one of the founders of free jazz. This is Forerunner, off of the album Change of the Century. Our question for this hour, can electoral politics lead the way to revolution? Marx, Engels, and Lenin insisted on the value of revolutionary parliamentarism, a lesson learned from the 1848 European Spring, the Paris Commune of 1871, and the spontaneous creation of workers' councils or Soviets in 1905. Running independent workers' party candidates would educate the people about alternative ways to organize their lives but would also allow a party to measure support for its ideas and count how many people would be willing to take up arms for revolution. That is, it's a means to get to a much different end than swearing in the capitalist status quo of officialdom. Revolutionary parliamentarism stands in stark contrast to parliamentary cretinism, defined by Engels as, quote, an incurable disease, an ailment whose unfortunate victims are permeated by the lofty conviction that the whole world, its history and its future, are directed and determined by a majority of votes of just that very representative institution that has the honor of having them in the capacity of its members." According to our guest, the honor of the greatest example of this in the university goes to his own discipline, that of political science. That guest is August Nimps, professor of political science at the University of Minnesota, and the author most recently of a two-volume work published by Palgrave on Lenin's electoral strategies, subtitled The Ballot, The Streets, or Both. The books track Lenin's use of electoral politics as a tactic to bring all power to the Soviets. Volume 1 shows Lenin's deep knowledge and indebtedness to Marx and Engels, specifically the 1850 address of the Central Committee to the Communist League, which he's said to have memorized, while Volume 2 shows the ways he puts these lessons into practice to get from the first revolutionary stirrings of 1905 to the success of October 1917. We begin with Lenin as a student of Marx and Engels in the realization that it's not the ballot or the streets, but both. And now, voting for revolution with August Nimps on Interchange on WFHB. August Nimps, welcome to Interchange. Pleased to be here, Doug. Well, let's jump right in. Uh, You claim that Lenin developed a strategy of revolutionary parliamentarism and that this concept is more relevant today than it's ever been. Um, why does this assertion need to be made? Is, is it understood that Lenin was opposed to elections, or is there some sense that you know, Lenin was against the electoral process? Well, yes, it's assumed 
that uh, Lenin and elections, uh, the two don't go hand in hand. That's mm-hmm. a common, that's a common assumption uh, made by the literature, what I call the Lenin, the Leninology uh, literature or the textbook uh, Lenin. I use the word strategy, but it's a little strong in many ways. Uh, for Lenin, uh, electoral and parliamentary work was really a tactic. Mm. It wasn't an end in itself, but it was a means to an end, a very important end. And it went back to uh, the practice of uh, Marx and, and Engels beginning in, 18, in the 1848, 1850 uh, events in, uh, in Europe. So Lenin flushed it out in greater detail. But again, for Lenin, elections and parliamentary uh, activities were not an end in themselves, but a means to an end to making a, re- a revolution. Mm. How is it that Marx and Engels um, sort of gave Lenin this this idea that that the parliamentary process was essential? In 1848-1849, there was a revolutionary upsurge in uh, Europe, sometimes known as the European Spring. It was an attempt to bring re- republican governance into uh, Europe, especially in France and in Germany. And so uh, once that process begins, the question of elections and electing uh, representatives to parliaments of various kinds, and Marx and Engels had to relate to it. And uh, they uh, were involved in the in elections. They had to run candidates for the Workers' Party. And out of that uh, process, they wrote a 11-page document called the Address of the Central Authority of the Communist League. And the March address, uh, again, only 11 pages, uh, talked about uh, some of the mistakes that they had made in the 1848-1849 process, particularly with regard to elections. And the they sought to make a correction. And that correction was that Rather than a vote for the liberal uh, candidate, the working class should have had its own candidates, Mm. its own party and its own candidates. And two things that they emphasize, elections are very important for getting out ideas and education. It's a way in which the workers' movement propagates its ideas and its program. Mm -hmm. That's one. And secondly, it's a way to estimate uh, to count, as they say in the document, your forces. That is to determine how much strength you actually have for deciding when to actually carry out armed struggle. So elections are, uh, uh, again, a means to an end, not an end in themselves, uh, but a great tool. And that was the argument that they made in that document. And Lenin, Lenin memorized that document. We know from uh, one of the major uh, biographers of the Bolshevik uh, Party, uh, David Ryazanov, he says that Lenin actually memorized the document. And so if you know that and then watch Lenin's practice, uh, when the first opportunity arises in uh, 1905, 1906, he is very much uh, doing what Marx and Engels uh, advised. Hmm. Well, so uh, what is then revolutionary parliamentarism? Originally, I wanted the title of that for the title of the books, but uh, my publisher convinced me no one would know what that actually meant. So <laughs> I needed to flush it out. But simply, uh, what they were trying to do was to distinguish between reformism, uh, parliamentarism, and the use of parliaments uh, for revolutionary purposes. Mm. These, by, by 1900 or so, 
there was a tendency on the part of social democratic parties to treat parliamentary activity as an end in itself rather than as a means to an end. And so the distinction uh, that they made and the label they put on that distinction was revolutionary parliamentary as opposed to reformism. Why was that necessary versus just, say, storming the gates? Well, again, going back to the uh, argument that Marx and Engels made, it was an excellent way of getting involved, running in elections, and also uh, having your candidates, if you win seats and having them in parliament, is an excellent way to get out your ideas, mm-hmm. your program, to win to win the working class to your perspective. You take advantage of political space. Mm. If there's a space, you take advantage of it, uh, and uh, but you don't treat it as an end in itself. So that's that was one. And then again, secondly, it gives you an opportunity to test what kind of attraction you have? What is your actual strength? Mm-hmm. Looking at the kinds of votes you're getting, where you're getting them, what what portions of the population are voting for you, it's a way to test how strong you are to decide when to actually take to storm the gates. Mm. So the the storming the gates is the the end uh, to yeah the end that you're seeking, and you're generally simply, as you say, trying to. Uh, to take a tally of of how of your strength, exactly. Okay, exactly. and and so uh, the the idea of parliament, parliamentary cretinism is a kind of for, reformism via expertise. It's a it's generally a liberal perspective and a kind like leads to plausibly, I guess, a, a kind of opportunism in politics. Yes, it's a term that was first used uh, disparagingly by Engels and Marx to describe the liberals in Germany in 1848-1849. Once they had been elected to the parliaments, they began to assume that activities in parliaments were the alpha and the omega of politics. It was the beginning and the end of politics. Everything important took place inside the hallowed halls of parliaments. That's what they meant disparagingly by parliamentary cretinism. Their, their argument was that the most important things in politics take place outside, outside the electoral and outside the parliamentary arena, on the streets, on the barricades, and in the battlefields. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is August Nimps, and we're discussing Lenin's electoral strategies to bring about revolution and the necessity of making a people's alliance between the peasants, the working class, and the petty bourgeoisie. What we have then, I guess, uh, what we can link together, right, is the idea that Marx and Engels uh, want the workers to control the means of production, Lenin uh, has the same end to achieve as well, to have a worker state, um, are there are there their ends the same? Marx and Engels and Lenin? Yes, yeah. To take to take uh, state power, it's uh, uh, to bring the working class into into power, mm. and only when when the working class takes state power will it be able to use the state to advance its to advance its uh, its interest. And that was an insight that uh, Marx reached and Engels reached about 1845. There was a major strike in uh, Germany that was defeated, that was crushed by the state. And the crushing of that strike was 
for the lesson for Marx and Engels was that the working class, if it was going to advance its interests, its economic interests, it needed to actually uh, take the state. If it didn't, if it didn't control the state, the state would, the ruling class would bring out the state to crush them. Mm. So we're we're introducing uh, obviously some class issues here and trying to understand uh, the the world in which Marx and Engels operated, the world in which Lenin operated, the world in which we're operating in now. But at the center of of perhaps our world and Marx and Engels is a way to handle or to deal with the capitalist class. And uh, maybe Lenin is in a different space, although capitalism comes into the issue. I mean, it's a big part of the issue as well. But he's not dealing directly with with a capitalist country at the time. Um, so is there, um, is there a way in which Lenin's idea of what the workers are going to do is different from what Marx and Engels have in mind? Or is the working class the end all and be all for this particular uh, conception of the, the good state, mm-hmm. um, the idea that the working class, since they do all the work and make all the things, <laughs> should be in charge of them and this will lead to a better uh, social organization? Yes, as long as the working class is uh, blocked, uh, not allowed to actually run the state, the state will, the uh, the elite, the capitalist class, will use the state to further their own interests. And we see this on a day-to-day basis in all kinds of ways. Let me say that for both Marx and Engels and Lenin, uh, given the realities of Germany in the 1840s and Russia in the early 19th, uh, early 20th uh, century, their call was actually for an, an alliance between workers and peasants because mm. peasants were the overwhelming majority of the population. It had to be an alliance between the working class and the peasantry, but with the workers in the lead in in that uh, alliance. So it's so what Lenin was calling for, and in uh, Marx and Engels, the term they used was the people's alliance uh, between workers, peasants, and the petty and the petty bourgeoisie, exactly because the peasantry were the overwhelming majority, with the working class clearly in the lead mm-hmm. in that alliance. So uh, you, you brought in another term there, petty bourgeoisie. So we've got to deal with the ideas that are like the social stratification of, of wealth uh, right. uh, within these societies and, and the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie, workers, peasants, how, how do, how might these be classified or characterized now in our particular terms? Are we talking about, uh, again, peasants, uh, serfs on the land, people working mm-hmm. the land for, for the lords of the land, uh, you know, maybe someone, uh, people understand, uh, at the time Tolstoy was, was a serf owner mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. Uh, but, um, then there's, um, uh, a working class. What's a working class in Russia at at the time? Are these uh, factory workers? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And also soldiers. Uh, this was also an, a working class uh, element. Uh, not all of them, of course, because there were uh, captains and whatnot. But mm-hmm. the soldier itself was basically a peasant moved into uniform. Exactly. That's the term that uh, Lenin oftentimes used to describe soldiers. Okay. Uh, uh, peasants. Peasants in uniform, both okay. the soldiers and the sailors. Okay, good. So, so then we then we move into petty bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie are these like shop owners, things of that nature? Yeah, basically the self-employed. Okay, in the most, in the most general sense, the self, the self-employed, the small, the small capitalists. Okay, and that's exactly what peasants, what most peasants and farmers were. Okay, if you think about here in the United States, that's what uh, that's what a farmer is: a self, the self-employed, small capitalist. 
for the most part. Some of them uh, become big capitalists, mm-hmm. but the vast majority of them are uh, a small capitalists, and oftentimes someone in the household has a foothold in the working class, one member of the household, well, sometimes the farmers themselves will oftentimes be both workers and farmers at the same time. That's a phenomenon we see quite often here in the United States. Mm. So then uh, what is the bourgeoisie then in this place? Yeah, these are the people who actually buy our labor. By the way, as I usually explain uh, in my classroom Mm -hmm. to students, uh, a worker is simply someone who has to sell his or her labor in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And if you're in that position, welcome to the working class. Okay. Not you are conscious of it or not. If you have to sell your labor to someone in order to survive, you in, you're part of the working class. The person who buys your labor, that's the capitalist class. Mm. So business owners then are capitalist class. Exactly. Okay. All right. It's time for a break. This is Ornette Coleman's European Echoes performed at the Golden Circle, live in Stockholm in 1965, described as brilliant and optimistic. When we return, we'll discuss the stratification of class societies and the way intellectuals legitimize the capitalist state. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is August Nymphs, and our program is Voting for Revolution. In this segment, the discussion centers on the way intellectuals legitimize class inequality and how academics in political science departments promote the idea that voting is empowering. Nymphs calls this vote fetishism and says it undermines working class power. So generally in this place, then we're trying to organize class distinction. And, and, and as, the, as the pyramid goes up, uh, the wealth uh, goes up to the top, it's mm-hmm. a pyramid of smaller and smaller amounts of people, right? Exactly. So, uh, and so it seems uh, an interesting uh, paradox that the smallest number of people have the greatest power, greatest wealth, while the bulk of people could have a large amount of power because there are just so many of us. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, right. This exactly. is part of the the struggle to revolution is for the the 
bulk of humanity to realize their their own agency and power in the world. Exactly, and that's and that's the reality of class society. Once classes came into existence about ten thousand years ago, uh, that's been a tendency, and stratification has actually deepened, as you know, all all of the discussion in the last few years about inequality. But yes, that's the tendency within uh, class societies, and the the minority are able to use their wealth to the, buy the best government, to buy the best <laughs> state that they can. And but keep in mind, because they are minority, they can't stay in power uh, by themselves. So right below that tiny minority are all of the ma- the managers, the mm. supervisors. And intellectuals, right. <laughs> and intellectuals who help to who help to uh, um, legitimize uh, uh, the state. Hmm. So uh, that was always one of the problems with the with the ninety nine percent occupy that I always felt because it assumed that uh, it, it ignored within the ninety nine uh, the large number of people who have a class interest in defending. That tiny minority, right, right. So really, like uh, the eighty-seven <laughs> percent. Yeah, even, or even, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, right. right. So you know, we can look to our left and our right in college towns and see people who are actively engaged in keeping the working class down. Sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Uh, and I think uh, we had a Michael Yates, uh, the Monthly Review, um, press on, and we talked about the distinction between those uh, who are work working class, as you as you described them, who sell their labor, but mm-hmm. are in those uh, professions that uh, basically uh, support or support by force the capitalist class, like police, et cetera, that they right. might pro- not properly be called working class because they are always at the at the hands of the the capitalist class. Do you have a, Do you feel the same way about that, or, or do you feel that there's a, a yeah yeah uh, yes? At the same time, it's important in the military to make a distinction in between. I think the police and the military, hmm. and in the military itself, uh, the rank and file versus the uh, the officer corps. But it's important to think about the intellectual defenders of the capitalist state. And I, I um, accuse my discipline, the, the discipline of political science, uh, having played a major role in helping to legitimize the capitalist uh, state. It's all, if necessary, the, the ruling class will bring out the police and the military to discipline us. But they would prefer that we discipline ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so the ideology is extremely important, be it religious ideology or secular ideologies that justify, that legitimize a class uh, inequality. And the uh, the discipline of political science, in my opinion, has a particular role in helping to justify a class inequality. And one of those is voting uh, fetishism. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the belief that the most important thing you can do politically is to vote. Mm-hmm. And I call that voting voting fetishism. And uh, my discipline, political science, I think, has helped to promote that idea more than any other discipline. But it's an erroneous, uh, it's an erroneous idea. And I tell my students oftentimes, uh, look at me, look at me physically who I am, because I'm African-American, there was a moment when I couldn't vote the first time I tried to vote in 1964. I wasn't allowed to vote. Four years later, I could vote in 1968. So what happened in between? If 
if voting is the most important political thing uh, one can do, how do you explain uh, how people who couldn't vote got the right to vote? Well, we got the right to vote because we took to the streets. Mm -hmm. We were looking outside the parliamentary uh, arena. Uh, You can't understand what Congress did in 1965 in, uh, in the Voting Rights Act without understanding what was going on in the streets. So voting fetishism is the the mistaken belief, in my opinion, that uh, when you exercise vote, you're actually exercising power. And my argument is, no, when you're voting, what you're doing, you're registering a preference for something, either for a candidate or for particular policies. But it's not exercising power. Power can only be exercised in the streets, on the picket lines, the barricades, and the battlefield. Power has to be taken. You are listening to Interchange on WFHB. August Nymphs is our guest. We're discussing the role of running working-class candidates in elections to gauge the strength of support for revolution, highlighting the example of Lenin as campaign manager. What you point to generally throughout in this work you've been doing is is the strength of Lenin as uh, a political uh, political personality, a political strategist, a political tactician, one of the greatest perhaps that there's mm-hmm. been, um, mm-hmm. and that uh, in a sense Lenin's own practices have been a tool that many have used. Uh, I think generally it's known or has been talked about how uh, Charles Koch has has said that, you know, they've used Lenin's strategies of, you know, the vanguard and expertise mm-hmm. to to train uh, people within their think tank world. Well, I used the term earlier and I'll come back to it. There's Lenin and then there's what I call textbook Lenin. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, textbook Lenin has caricatured Lenin. Mm. Uh, presented him in a particular light. And I, I trace it actually back to a uh, very influential uh, book in political science that was published in 1965-1967, which I first read uh, in Bloomington when I was a graduate student mm-hmm. at IU, uh, by Samuel Huntington, uh, Political Order in Changing Societies. Very, very influential book. And in that, he has a chapter about Lenin. This is uh, Huntington's uh, uh, Huntington's uh, view and understanding of Lenin. He makes it clear that uh, while he disagrees politically with everything that Lenin stood for, he was an admirer of Lenin's uh, tactics. And so, uh, but in that in that textbook rendering, you would never know that uh, Lenin employed elections in parliamentary arenas. Uh, to actually, um, as a tactic, uh, to advance the interests of the working class. It's a simplistic reading of Lenin, and why I call it the textbook Lenin. So whenever you hear people like uh, the Kochs or whoever claim that uh, they're employing Lenin's tactics, it's a caricatured uh, Lenin. So you also point to a book written in, I think, 1971 uh, by uh, Doug Jenis of the Social mm-hmm. Socialist Workers' Party called Lenin as Election Campaign Manager, and you say it inspired you to your work. Right. The uh, It's actually a pamphlet that uh, uh, Doug wrote on behalf of the uh, Socialist Workers' Party, and it's still, it's still in print. And as far as I know, it's the only thing prior to what I wrote, aside from Lenin, of course, is the only thing that actually um, exists. 
about Lenin, what Lenin, uh, Lenin's uh, approach to uh, elections and uh, the parliamentary uh, process. And I was inspired by it. The pamphlet itself came out of, deb- out of a debate on, in the left in that moment about whether or not uh, to think about the anti-Vietnam, anti-war movement in that moment, and whether or not should socialists participate in elections, should they run their own candidates. Uh, so that was a big debate. So the pamphlet was uh, an effort to resurrect uh, the real Lenin in order to make a case against those who believe that uh, running candidates, socialist candidates and so on, was a no-no, was a non-starter. And, and so that was the the context. And so in many ways, my book was an attempt to update it and to flush it out into more detail because in the context of the Occupy movement, uh, the context of my book, uh, in the context of the Occupy movement, that was a big debate, if you may remember, mm-hmm. about uh, especially with the anarchists who were oftentimes very active in the Occupy movement, who disagreed with the uh, electoral in, in being involved, understandably, exactly because of the history of reformism and the betrayal of the working class by uh, social democrats and so on. Uh, and what was going on, especially in Europe, and you look at uh, 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 the social democracy within Europe, it's understandable why the anarchists would argue, why get involved? Why be complicit in a process that has historically betrayed the working class? And so what I was trying to do as that pamphlet in 1971 was to go back to the real Lenin and to make the case why it's not either are. It's mm. not one or the other. Uh, but if you look at elections in the parliamentary process as a, as a means to an end, not an end in itself, as reformism, as uh, social democracy does, then it's a legitimate uh, tactic. It's time for another break. Here's a little change of pace. This is Bourgeois Boogie, off of Ornette Coleman's 1988 album, Virgin Beauty, an album said to be frequently exciting, but needing several listens to absorb. When we return, the failed experiment of democracy in the USA, where half the population doesn't vote.
Welcome back. I'm Doug Stormine Interchange. Our show today is Voting for Revolution, and our guest is August Nimps, author of Lenin's Electoral Strategies. Two volumes asking the question, the ballot, the streets, or both? In this segment, Nimps explores the way independent working class parties get sucked into the black hole of the Democratic Party. So it's, uh, it's pretty clear in the system that we operate in that it tries hard as it can to limit politics, limit discussion, limit these other perspectives. And talking about running your own uh, uh, candidates if you're from a particular party, we don't literally have parties that run in this country. Occasionally we get a Green Party, occasionally there's an independent, but we don't have workers' party candidates. Um, is there uh, – and, and as you can see, I think that we have a country that literally does not believe that voting matters very much in the first place as uh, something like half of us don't vote anyway. So how is it that in this kind of failed experiment of a democratic nation, we can we can sort of take that process back as an educational process and and run workers' party candidates, even if we can't call them workers' party candidates? Again, that pamphlet came out of a debate uh, that the Socialist Workers Party was having with other groups on the left in the early 1970s, and that was because beginning in 1948, the Socialist Workers Party began running uh, candidates uh, in elections, drawing on uh, the lessons of uh, Marx, Engels, and Lenin, and, mm-hmm. and it still does, uh, wherever it can. It's a small organization, mm-hmm. so it does its best to run uh, to run candidates. And to use the electoral process, again, as a way to propagate uh, uh, ideas. There's a bigger question that you were raising about why is it that the United States is the only major advanced capitalist country that doesn't have its own working class, the working uh, mm. work class doesn't have its own political party. Right, right. And it's a very important question, and it and it, it, it gets back into the history uh, of the left and the socialist and the workers' movement in the United States. Um, the first, uh, I happen living here in Minnesota, I'm very aware of it. I'm trying to help to advance that history and to let others know about it. But Minnesota is the only state where there was a working class party known as the former labor party that actually, uh, won a governorship, uh, on four occasions hmm. between, uh, about 1928 and 1930, 1936. And uh, that uh, experience is, is very instructive. It went back to developments uh, that came out of the populist movement uh, in the late 18, 1890s. And in the populist m- movement, um, the populist movement, small farmers trying to hold on to their land, and uh, Williams Jennings Bryan uh, uh, was able to convince them to bring them into the Democratic Party. It's the first example I contend of how independent working class uh, peasant movements uh, get sucked into what I call the black hole of the Democratic Party, and they become completely transformed and uh, housebroken and domesticated. Mm-hmm. And that's been the history of the Democratic Party. And there's no there's no party in the United States has, that has played uh, such a uh, consequential role 
in undermining, undermining independent working class political action. That's what happened in Minnesota. Uh, in 1944, the Democratic Party carried out an operation to undermine uh, the former Labor Party, and a fusion took place in 1944, and that was the end of uh, independent working-class political action in Minnesota. So Minnesota is the only state in which the Democratic Party here is known as the Democratic former Labor Party, hmm. a recognition of that of that history. Uh, Engels Ingalls addressed this question. He got a letter from uh, comrades here in the United States in 1893, and they were bemoaning the fact that they didn't have a labor party here. And so uh, Ingalls replied and said, look, in the United States, it's difficult, uh, and there are reasons for it. He said, one, um, the electoral system, you have an electoral system that makes it difficult for third parties uh, to get off the ground, the, the winner-take-all electoral uh, system. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, though, there were more important structural factors, and one of them was what he called the possibility for upper mobility on the part of the working class. People who came from Europe here as workers with working class consciousness were able to have uh, access to land, to become landowners. In other words, to become a part of the petty bourgeoisie, small landowners. Mm-hmm. And so that minimized, that undermined working class, uh, working class consciousness. And there was a third reason that Engels said, and that was that the divisions within the working class in the United States, especially the native versus the foreign born, and as always, the race question. In other words, the divisions within the working class in the United States made it difficult for workers to come together as workers, to see themselves as workers, and therefore to see the need to have their own political uh, political party. And perhaps it's not surprising that it, uh, the former Labor Party took place here in Minnesota, where you had a fairly uh, homogenized uh, population in terms of skin color, mm-hmm. and it made it easier for that to happen. Whereas my original, my home state in Louisiana and New Orleans, it was much more difficult in the South, uh, in the legacy of slavery, the Confederacy, to forge a working class party because of the divisions within the, within the working class. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. August Nimps is our guest and we're discussing the Paris Commune of 1871 and the lessons learned from it. That workers must make a new state and not trust the existing parliamentary institutions and how this points to Soviet democracy. So uh, a couple of points you made there, and one in particular that uh, is uh, is important to stress here is is that sort of proletarian independence, right? The, mm-hmm. the, and and you make the point that that we could probably say uh, in the United States you've got a Republican Party that is absolutely a business, uh, capitalist, mm-hmm. corporate, oligarchical mm-hmm. party, mm-hmm. and then a Democratic Party that actually undermines the party that or the people that might upset that capitalist mm-hmm. apple cart. 
Right. So they yeah, work yeah. in concert, right? So they've been co yeah, they've been co-opted. The right. Democratic Party has a history of co-opting progressive social movements. Right, right, right. Okay. So um I also wanted to ask because you you point to this as well, you point to the Paris Commune as being mm -hmm. a, a a learning moment for mm -hmm. Marx and Engels um that the working class can't simply lay a hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield right. it for its own purpose. Why not and how did the the Paris Commune illustrate that? Yeah, the Paris Commune was extremely uh, significant, and it was a development, as Marx oftentimes proudly said, it was something that workers discovered on their own. What happened was the uh, the overthrow of the empire uh, in 1870 uh, opened up political space for workers to try to create a new republic. And so the Third Republic came into existence, but it became increasingly clear to workers that this new republic, however, was an obstacle uh, to working class interests. The working class could never break through this republic parliamentary system to actually have its interests represented. And so the commune was an effort to overcome those obstacles and in a number of ways, one, to fuse to, to fuse both the executive uh, branch of government with the legislative or the parliamentary branch, rather than separate them. Because in the sep when you separate them under the uh, Republican form of government, you can pass laws within the, the legislative branch, but then there's an, the, thing, the laws have to be actually enacted. And in both the legislative branch and in the executive branch, capital, the capitalists are able to exert their influence through lobbying efforts to influence the uh, uh, the lawmaking process and then secondly, the, the, the law affecting process. If you fuse the two, bring both the executive and the legislative functions together, which is what the commune uh, did, it allowed the working class to have much more influence in the actual governance process. The commune also uh, experimented with one of its norms was immediate recall. If you didn't like uh, your legislative uh, representative, you could immediately recall them. Uh, this was of, import of enormous importance for the, uh, for the working class. Uh, thirdly, you could also elect representatives from the workplace, from your own, not just ge geographically where you live, you your residents, but also from your workplace. And they would be a part of the uh, legislative uh, process and also the carrying out of the legislative, uh, legislative uh, dictates. And so it was that the lesson for Marx and Engels uh, was that the uh, until the Paris Commune, this problem, this historical problem that workers had had with legislative processes it was only with the Paris Commune that it was discovered, as they, I think that's the language, the workers discovered a form of government that really served, served their interests. Hmm. And when Lenin, when Lenin saw what happened spontaneously in Russia beginning in 1905, when workers began to form what were called Soviets or consuls, he realized the similarity between the consuls or the Soviets and what had been done in the Paris uh, Commune. And so what he referred to it as Soviet democracy, and it was akin to the democracy in the Paris, in the Paris Continental.
it's time for our final break. This is Law Years, off of Ornette Coleman's 1971 masterpiece, Science Fiction, called a creative rebirth and a meeting ground between past and future. More with August Nymphs on electioneering and revolution when Interchange returns. Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is author and political science professor August Nymphs, and our show is Voting for Revolution, Lenin in the Ballot Box. In our final segment, we'll try to apply the lessons of Lenin's electioneering to our present moment. Nymphs finds hope in the recent increase in labor strikes led by teachers. state itself or the idea of the state uh, mm-hmm. is, is, I think, a little bit complex in some mm-hmm. ways, right? So uh, what, what I think you've said is, is that within the Paris Commune, they've they created a new form of a state. Exactly. And that would be successful or could be successful, perhaps. I mean, it only lasted, what, 70-some days? Yes, yeah. about, uh, about almost three months. Yeah. So And it was brutally crushed, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. Right. The, the Soviets or the workers' councils is a way to uh, to govern workers governing the process of their work and and work and life kind of go together in those in those places. Yes, and also not only in the workplace, but those representatives from the workplace are actually in the governance of the society as a whole. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh. Okay, so so is there a if we again trying to understand things that we're doing now? It's a, one of mm-hmm. those difficult things again to kind of bring this forward a hundred plus years later from from the Russian Revolution and obviously uh, w- w- much further back uh, another sure. thirty forty years from the Paris sure. Commune as well. Uh, so in 1905 in, in, in Russia, you know, there there's a czar, there are feudal lords. Uh, so we have oligarchs and plutocrats, I guess. But in Lenin's time, there was a kind of a broad working class, a, a, a militant minority, but a substantial size, a significant degree of sort of revolutionary class consciousness, uh, a substantial working class movement. And maybe we had something like this in the in the 20s and 30s. 
Um, I'm not exactly sure if there could be parallels there, but in, in this particular time, uh, we don't quite have these things in the right place, right? The working class in Lenin's time was fairly small, maybe about 10 to 15 percent of the population. Hmm. And again, the peasantry was the overwhelming. That's why it had to be a worker peasant uh, right. uh, alliance. Fairly concentrated working class, though, right? Like in terms right. of those those factories were large, and there exactly. were a lot of people in them. Exactly. I guess we don't quite have what you would call a revolutionary vanguard, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's and again, we have uh, a group of people that don't quite understand themselves as working class. Right. Uh, we exactly. have you know this hopeful idea that you're not working class, right. <laughs> even right. as you are a worker. Right. Right. But that's changing, though, uh, Doug. Yes, Think yeah. about, especially since t- 2008, mm-hmm. um, the end of the American dream, which was already in place. Uh, remember, Engels talked about this in 1893, about the American dream undermining working class consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, the American dream for most workers is not real. Uh, and so consciousness is slowly catching up uh, with with reality. And the most important development in the labor movement the last year, there was an article the other day in the Wall Street Journal. It was the first significant increase in strikes and led by the teachers. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the teacher strikes are extremely important, uh, especially the ones that took place in the so-called red, red states. And it again, they took place exactly because of the reality of what it means to be a worker. Teachers, my mother, my uh, family were all teachers, and so you went in thinking you were part of the middle class. You were no longer part of the of the, of the working class. Why well, you went to college and got degrees, but the reality is that you're forced to be in the working class, and you're forced to have to fight now. So that's the that's that's the change. the The biggest problem we face, we'll see working class fights. That's not a problem. The biggest problem we face is the question of uh, independent working class political action, how to avoid getting sucked into what I call the black hole of the Democratic uh, Party, Mm -hmm. independent working class political action. And some of that was posed in the Los Angeles uh, strike and uh, where you had a blue blue state, a blue city, how to make sure that the, the strike activities are independent. This is Interchange on WFHB. August Nimps, political science professor and author of several books on Marx and Engels and Lenin and democracy, explores the way lesser evilism obstructs the democratic process and promotes acquiescence to the capitalist status quo. Right, so so one of the issues that that comes up, and this may be a, a kind of parallel or complementary issue, is this idea for uh, lesser evilism mm-hmm. uh, that you that Lenin himself responded to as regards the Black Hundreds and, and the cadets. You explain Lenin's situation and then perhaps try to understand it as we've been dealing with lesser evilism here also. The lesser evil question is first taken up in that little 11-page document that Marx and Engels wrote in 1850, mm. in which they said, look, we, you have to run your candidates even if it risk, even if it risk uh, 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 allowing reactionaries to get elected, because the because that's what happened in 1848 in the real world of politics. The workers were convinced not to run their own candidates. 
the liberals were saying, if you run your own candidates, you're just going to allow the reactionaries to get elected. And Marx and Engels went along with it and realized it was a mistake. Hmm. They should have run their own candidates, even if at risk. That's it says in the document, uh, allowing reactionaries to win, because there's more to be gained politically by running your own candidates independently, because that's the way you get out your ideas. Mm-hmm. That's not, if, you, if you're not willing to run, can, you, how, how else are you going to get out your ideas? Every time you get sucked into the lesser evil, it undermines uh, independent working class political action, getting out your ideas. And what was Lenin's uh, lesser evil? Yeah, he was simply extending it, uh, uh, that that uh, argument to the situation in Russia when the first elections took place in 1906. There was this ultra-right party known uh, group known as sometimes as the Black Hundreds, uh, an incipient fascist-like uh, operation, and the liberals who were the cadets kept telling the Workers' Party, uh, the workers, uh, uh, both the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, look, uh, you shouldn't run your own candidates. Uh, you're just going to allow the, the black hundreds to be elected. And so Lenin had to debate that inside the uh, the party amongst uh, with the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The Mensheviks were more inclined to go along with the cadet argument about the lesser evil. And the cadets were more like our Democrats. Yeah, exactly. Our liberals, modern liberals. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, so then um, there's also uh, the point that Engels makes that – um, you use elections to force rulers to resort to illegality, so that mm-hmm. if you were if you're if you're successful in elections and can begin to move your actual agenda forward, the capitalist class and the rulers will have to actually step outside the law. Exactly, exactly, and that's what that's what they will do. It puts you in a very strong position because workers are not automatically going to be one to arm struggle, and so if you can force the capitalists to suspend. Uh, democracy and so on. You're in a stronger position to actually convince workers of the need for um, the need for armed um, struggle, and you're doing it from a much stronger position because you've already used the elections to get out your ideas. You've gotten an opportunity to see what your strengths are, who's voting for you, what parts of the working class are voting for you, are there peasants voting for working class candidates? All that becomes um, all that becomes uh, possible. Uh, through elections. And so the clear point here, though, with both uh, Marx, Engels, and Lenin is armed struggle. Yes, the state will have to be overthrown. Yeah, the capitalists, never in the history of, uh, of the ruling class, of, ruling, of class society, has, has rule, have ruling class, none I know of, ruling classes uh, peacefully, peacefully left the scene. You, you, that and that was the history in the United States, the, uh, the fight for independence, the fight to overthrow slavery. And there's no reason to assume that won't be the case when it comes to the capitalist uh, class. The question then is, what is the best way to prepare for that? Again, mm-hmm. that's where elections in the parliamentary process, you want to you want to minimize you want to minimize the violence as much as possible. The largest the larger the number of people you have involved in the struggle. This is what the. Remember, when the Bolsheviks took power in 1970, it's estimated maybe about 11 people died in, in um, Petrograd. And, uh, and the reason for that is because the movement was so extensive. You had such broad support that and you want to win over the importance of doing political work inside the military. I can't yeah, yeah. Is that enough. Because you want to win over the soldiers. Right. You win over the soldiers and you minimize the violence. 
Yeah, that of course, it makes good sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes good sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't write them off. They, you see them as fellow workers, right. workers and peasants in uniform. Right, right. Hey, um, August, are, are there movements now that you are you are finding hope in? Uh, we you talk or we talked a little bit about uh, uh, the Socialist Workers Party and and continuing to do the work, and it's a very small organization. Are right. there movements now that you would call um, you know, you would think to and look to with hope uh, that it, that there's some spread. I know that um, that are working outside, but they're still working outside the parliamentary process, but that are now trying to start to maybe find their way into that space as well. I think those uh, Parkland shooting uh, kids are, are doing some good work with their March for Our Lives and trying to make those connections into the parliamentary process as well. Do you do you see others? The most important, in my opinion, are, again, uh, the teachers right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are really in the vanguard of the lab- of the labor movement. Mm. Uh, they suffer the same problem that independent movements like the Parkland, the students, that, uh, how to avoid being sucked into mm-hmm. the black hole right. of the Democratic Party. That's the, that's the biggest challenge all of these uh, movements, uh, these movements face. And so I think... Uh, that I mean, that's the history of that's that's the actual history of independent progressive movements in the United States, the inability to stay independent. That's our show. We'll close with Ornette Coleman's Trouble in the East off of Crisis. Recorded in 1969, an album called Most Satisfying on Purely Musical Grounds. Featured on this album is Coleman's son, Denardo Coleman, who was just shy of 14 years old during the recording. Our thanks to August Nymphs for sharing with us some of the insights found in his books on Lenin's Electoral Strategies, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Next time on Interchange, Terry Francis joins us to discuss Josephine Baker, dancer, actress, singer, World War II French intelligence correspondent, and civil rights activist. In the context of the cultural crises that erupt where race and gender inequalities, humor, and the erotic intersect in popular entertainment. Josephine Baker and the Burlesque, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.